I really just want somebody who's going to aggressively fight for me in court. Is that too much to ask? Filing an eviction should not be complicated. There's got to be an easier way. Nothing frustrates me more than having to wait for my attorney to call me back. I need them now. What I really need from my law firm is someone who can provide my staff training so we actually can stay out of trouble. When you have property management problems, we have your solutions. This is the Zona Law Group podcast with the experienced attorneys from Zona Law. Hello, everybody. I'm Melissa Parham. I'm an attorney with Zona Law Group. Uh, I'm here today with Scott Balua, also an attorney with our firm. Uh, My focus is manufactured housing community and RV community law. So that's kind of what this podcast will focus on today. And Scott, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Oh, thank you, Melissa. Uh, I'm also an attorney with Zona Law. I've been here for about uh, three or four years. Uh, I assist Melissa and a lot of the uh, uh, litigation that goes on involving the mobile home cases or manufactured housing cases. Uh, and today we're going to try to focus on some of the more recent developments uh, that have come down through uh, administrative orders as well as through um, executive orders um, pertaining to COVID-19. Uh, so, Melissa, where would you like to start? So I've been receiving some questions from clients about how to deal with their swimming pools and their gyms. Um, because that's really the most recent uh, executive order that we have that uh, actually dealt with manufactured housing communities. Um, We had another executive order that came out, can't even keep track of time anymore, but I think it was last week, but that one only affected uh, in-house dining at restaurants, so it didn't affect the rental communities. Um, But the questions I've been getting relate to the executive order that required that privately owned sort of semi-public pools at apartment communities and mobile home communities, it would apply to as well, that they post signs um, limiting the occupancy of the pool area. And the the way they actually worded it, I pulled the executive order, is that uh, privately owned pools located in public areas such as those at multi-housing complexes or other privately owned facilities may continue to be open provided that signage is included at all entrances to the pool reminding people to maintain physical distance and that groups larger than 10 should not congregate. And that second part is where we've been getting confusion with clients who have big pool areas that have a normal capacity of 500 asking, okay, so do we have to limit the occupancy to just 10 or can we allow different groups of 10 to show up in the pool area as long as they stay together and stay six feet apart from other groups? My thinking on this, um, it's sort of been evolving a little bit, but I, I still think the safest bet is to keep an occupancy of 10 because that's a bright line. That's probably going to be easier to enforce to the extent that they have to enforce, and maybe you'll want to talk about that in a second. Um, but an occupancy of 10 is going to be a clear, bright line that's easy for any property to follow, regardless of the size of the pool. But we have had some clients where tenants have rebelled against that and said, well, this pool area is huge. This is absurd. You know, this is a big community. Why should it be limited to 10 people? Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I've received several questions as well along the same lines uh, about what to do with the pools. Uh, because on the one hand, you don't want to end up in a circumstance where you have a lot of unhappy residents who are, you know, paying their monthly rental spaces. They have an expectation to be able to use some of the uh, public facilities, uh, such as the pools, and they're now being prohibited from doing so. Um, I would agree that the abs- the most conservative route is to just stick with the ten- no more than 10 people in the pool area. However, uh, you know, I, I tend to... Um, sway on the side of maybe in certain circumstances, depending on the size of the pool area, courting off different sections to say, well, this would be a section that would be for 10 p- 
people, no more than 10 people in this other section, then that way you could allow more. The biggest issue is enforcement. What are you going to do in that circumstance? How often should you go out there and check to see whether or not social distancing is being maintained um, in addition to the number of people in the pool area? Um, in a, uh, the governor's order says specifically that you must have these signs up, so it would clearly be a violation of the executive order to not do so. But in addition to having those signs up, you should also have signs up that deal with the CDC recommendations with regards to social distancing and uh, any of the other recommendations uh, because you want to disseminate and show that the community is doing everything that they can to give the tools to the residents so that they can properly protect themselves. You know, it's a, it's a difficult situation, and in one circumstance, you might have a liability for not allowing full access uh, to the property. And then on the other hand, you know, you have the potential risk of someone filing a complaint for not enforcing the rules. Uh, it, the general advice we've been giving everyone is you don't have to be out there monitoring it 24-7. You don't have to hire specific staff to be out there to watch the pool area. However, it should be part of the normal routine of the on-site managers and other staff that if they go by and they notice that there is an excessive number of people, that they're not maintaining social distancing, that they must take some type of action in order to enforce that. Uh, Melissa, what are your thoughts on the mechanisms for enforcement? Oh, well, I mean, unfortunately, there's really not a great mechanism for enforcement. Just just before we started this podcast, we were kind of talking about a, a client who had someone have an anti-mask tirade at their community recently and ended up shoving a, a manager. Um, that's the problem is when you have private entities trying to enforce things like that and people say, oh, no, you, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. You can't, you know, you can't do anything to me. You can't enforce this. Then you're putting it on your manager to have to go fight with people about, you know, whether they're six feet apart and whether they, um, whether there are too many people in the pool area. And that's putting them in a, in a very uncomfortable situation that they probably didn't think they'd be getting into. Um, I mean, one possible enforcement mechanism is to call the police, but whether law enforcement will respond, I don't know how they'll handle it. I don't know. Um, it's going to be difficult. Um, that's kind of why I lean towards the 10, no more than 10, because that's an easy bright line. You just count the people there and one's got to leave. If they refuse to leave and you have to call the police, then unfortunately you have to call the police. Um, I do like, I, I hadn't really thought about the idea that you had about maybe having, if it's a huge pool area, having sections that are actually cordoned off or you have, you know, six seats or 10 seats rather that are all six feet apart in each section. If it's a huge pool area, that makes sense. But yeah, the enforcement mechanism is, is a nightmare. I, I suppose a manager could give a, a 10, 20 notice, but then what do they get to crowd in the pool area for, for 10 days? Right. As long as they cure it on day 11, there's, there's really not a great solution. Yeah, it, it, that is the problem with either doing a 1439 compliance or a 1020 health and safety is that you, that period of time that lapses and the time that's allowed a resident to cure is going to make the notice essentially ineffective. Uh, so I, I think your best bet is just like, you know, attempt to contact the police. And uh, beyond that, just keep good documentation as well about the interactions that the on-site representatives have had with either guests or residents, because if 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 there is some type of complaint that is later filed, you want to be able to go back and show, well, look, we alerted every about, uh, everyone. There's 11 people here. Somebody's got to leave. Every somebody that was there refused to leave. You keep good documentation about that in case there is a suit that comes up later, then now you have at least some uh, level of protection over that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, managers want to be sure that, and owners of communities want to be sure that they're not being negligent. So they've got the signs up. The manager's 
doing their best to keep tabs on how many people are there um, to the extent that they're able to. And, you know, you're sanitizing to the extent that you're able to as a business. And I know in another podcast, Mark and I talked about having tenants sign waivers if they're going to use the facilities. So that's something to keep in mind and to maybe attempt to get tenants to sign, forcing them to sign it is, is going to be difficult. Right, um, right. And but it, it's, as far as the gyms go as well, it, there's a strict prohibition on that. You cannot open your gyms um, and you must have signage up that says that those facilities are, are, are closed. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, one of the topics that came up uh, last time was that, uh, you know, what if you have a circumstance where somebody provides you uh, with information that says, well, look, I have a doctor's note that says that I have to exercise on a routine. I, you know, I got my residency here because you did have a gym, you know, in that circumstance, what are you going to advise to the park manager? That's a tough one. Um, if they're seeking a reasonable, com- I think we talked about this a little bit. If they're seeking a reasonable accommodation to a policy, practice, or procedure, I don't think this would actually be a, a policy, practice, or procedure of the park, which is typically what someone who's asking for a reasonable accommodation is asking for an exception to. This is a government mandate that gyms have to close, and there's nothing in that mandate that exempts gyms at a mobile home park. So I think the park would probably have to come back and, and say, look, it's a government mandate. That's why the gyms are closed. We can't open it. And I mean, if, if one individual was able to have the gym open for them, then there may end up being other requests that are for my mental health. I need the gym to be open. And then the park is basically having to operate a gym somehow against the governor's order and having to sanitize. And I think it would, would, would be exempted from a reasonable accommodation request. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I, well, now we can move on to the uh, administrative order 2020-105 that came out last week. Uh, essentially, the order is there for the purposes of providing additional guidance for what ev- the eviction process will look like after um, the expiration of the executive order and also what processes uh, attorneys need to take in order to move forward. This also does have some, uh, of course, implications for the on-site managers as well. Uh, Melissa, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so we have the the executive order um, that the governor issued that postponed the execution of writs of restitution on evictions is expiring fairly soon. Um, It's scheduled to expire on July 22nd. Um, So right now we have um, some clients who've proceeded through with the eviction process, but then the writ was held up because the tenant uh, gave something to the landlord or to the court stating that they fell under the order. So they have COVID, they have to quarantine due to it and the other um, qualifications. We have that expiring. And then we also have the CARES Act uh, set to expire uh, on July 25th. So there's a potential for, um, for some evictions coming after those expire. And basically this administrative order is issued by the Arizona Supreme Court and it discusses how to deal with these two situations. Um, I suppose the the biggest effect it has will be on the executive order when the executive order expires and properties that have obtained um, judgments against tenants are now able to get the writ executed and file for that writ. This uh, order indicates that they're going to need to file a motion for the writ, so a motion to compel the writ of restitution. It's not going to be automatic. Um, And in that motion to compel, they basically have to meet the requirements of a, a provision in the rules of procedure for eviction actions where they show why there's good cause for the writ to issue after it normally would have expired, because in most of these cases, we're going to be beyond 45 days. So they have to show good cause and that they haven't reinstated the tenancy. 
Um, and also a few things to note about the executive order is once that motion is granted, there's actually going to be an additional five day waiting period before the writ can be executed. Um, it also addresses the ability to amend judgments. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, sure. So, so the practical implication here is that, uh, you know, there's going to be a different, uh, a different decision tree depending on what's going on in the particular uh, case. Uh, you know, the on-site manager should be aware that there's going to uh, be a delay associated with uh, being able to get the eviction judgment potentially as well as getting the writs executed depending on which track you go down. Uh, if you have a case where a judgment was entered two months ago and the resident qualified for a stay under the executive order, then if you've accepted money uh, to pay off the original judgment amount, then your best bet is to just start with the eviction process from the very beginning again. Serve a five-day or a seven-day notice, depending on what type of lease you have, and then move forward from there. Now, if you've only accepted a part of the amount of the judgment, well, then we have an option. We file a motion with the court saying that this is the amount that's been paid. Uh, However, the full amount has not been paid uh, in full. We would request that the judgment be amended and then a hearing be set to determine the proper amount of the judgment as well as uh, issuance of the writ of restitution. So uh, because of those two tracks, the on-site managers need to be aware that uh, it, for at least this uh, short time period, there will be some adjustments that we need to make, and it may end up delaying the process uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, in my experience, the majority of on-site managers and majority of communities have been trying to work out voluntary plans anyway, so this should just end up kind of dovetailing into that. Uh, another part of the executive uh, or part of the administrative order from the Arizona Supreme Court talks about uh, doing a, a hybrid consent order that essentially says that uh, if the parties agree, and this isn't a requirement, however, we anticipate that some judges will try to highly encourage the parties to use these consent agreements that say that as long as you've made payments between now and let's say 30 days from now, whatever the parties come to terms on, then the judgment gets dismissed and then there is no judgment that shows up for the for the resident. So in that circumstance, the community gets all of their rent paid, any of the court costs, any of the attorney's fees incurred, and then the resident gets uh, an unblemished uh, record with regards to having an eviction against them. So it's a huge benefit for, for both parties. Mm. And I think uh, one of the, the last topics that we wanted to touch on was uh, the potential expiration of the CARES Act. Uh, as, uh, everyone is probably aware, if you since if you've been communicating with our office, uh, you'll know that one of the questions we ask is whether or not your property is subject to the CARES Act, whether or not you have a federally backed mortgage or you otherwise accept subsidized uh, payments for the property. And we do have numerous clients that do fall in those categories. But then the question becomes is that once the CARES Act expires, assuming that it is not extended, what happens? Melissa, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so the CARES Act uh, in its own terms actually requires, once it expires, it, it's not just that at that point you can go ahead and serve your non-payment notice, which for most mobile home parks, unless it's an RV situation or a rental home, is going to be a seven-day notice. Um it doesn't just allow you to serve your seven day and go ahead and evict. Instead, it actually requires that a 30 day notice to vacate be given to the resident. Um, So we'll be working on developing um, forms for clients to use in that situation that basically incorporates a a 30 day notice to vacate plus a seven day, um, because you're actually not looking at being able to do any evictions once the CARES Act expires right at July 25th. You're looking at going into August instead because of that 30-day notice requirement. Um, and the court itself recognizes that and recognizes that um, 
that we're going to have to be looking at 30 days before those evictions can be filed. So this administrative order evidence is that, that the court's aware of that as well. Um, so that gives tenants a little more time to, um, to get things together before potentially having to vacate or, as you mentioned, you know, time to work something out with the landlord, which we've been seeing a lot, um, a lot of that, especially, I think, with our mobile home park clients. Right, right. And uh, I guess uh, we're running a little low on time here. Uh, do you want to mention for us uh, uh, that uh, you have an upcoming training? Yes. Thank you for that. Yes. So um, MHCA, Manufactured Housing Communities of Arizona. I'm the attorney for MHCA, and we are uh, putting on a training class. Property managers, as many of our clients know, are required to attend uh, six hours of training on mobile home park and fair housing law within, uh, I believe it's six months of first hire. And then they have to renew that training every two years after that. So it's been a little difficult to get that training when a lot of people don't want to go out uh, with the COVID-19 situation. So MHD is offering the training in person, but they're also offering it via Zoom. And I'll be teaching that uh, that training via Zoom. That's coming up, gosh, this Friday, um, July 17th. Um, and so you'll want to contact Manufactured Housing Communities of Arizona if you want to sign up for it. And we're going to be knocking out all six hours via Zoom. So should be interesting. Hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to mute anyone who goes crazy during the call and make everything go smoothly. Um, but that's coming up. So contact MHCA if you want to sign up for it. And if you've been putting it off, putting off these classes because of, uh, because of COVID-19, sign up for this one because you don't have to go in person for this training. Right. And uh, just so everyone knows as well, there's a potential fine from the Department of Housing for not having that training and not posting those certificates in the uh, office. So we encourage everybody to reach out to the MHCA and get those, uh, get those sessions uh, scheduled. Yep, absolutely. Right. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you.